You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Hear now the reading of the word. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. And for our New Testament reading, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, verses 29 through 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that We are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. So, Father, now I pray that you would bless us as we read and study and seek to understand your word. That that you would wield your word in such a way as to call us into this unbelievably high calling. Um, That we would believe everything that you've said. As a result of believing those things, we would obey those things. God, the ramifications would have, um, would bear fruit in our city, would bear fruit in our state, would bear fruit in our nation, and bear fruit among the nations of the world. So come now and take up your word and wield it. In your name we pray, amen. And we are spending these weeks considering um, the, the completion of the, the, the work of Jesus. Um, we talked last week, and I wanna, I'm spending the first few minutes of our, uh, of our time together this morning 
um, kind of rehashing where we were last week and then considering um, uh, one step further. So we're going to kind of go back over all the ground we covered last week and then we're going to take one further step and consider the implications of it. Um, Last week we focused primarily on the question, where is Jesus now? Where is his body Um, Not just where is Jesus spiritually, uh, not just where is Jesus emotionally for us in our hearts, um, but where is the body of Jesus? Just quite straightforwardly, where is his body? Um, And we saw last week that that, um, all of the gospel writers, in fact, the whole New Testament rings with with the promise, not, not just the promise, but actually the claim, the declaration that Jesus' body is right now at the right hand of the Father. Um, Christ's ascension, um, as we saw unfold in Acts chapter 1 last week, um, and as Luke ends his gospel at the very end of Luke as well, um, kind of ending his first volume and beginning his second volume, which is a clue to us that this is really, really important. He tells the same story twice. Um, The the, the, the fundamental truth being that, that, that... Christ's body has ascended into the heavenlies and is seated now at the right hand of the Father. Um, This is vital and central and important and has been downplayed for far too long. Um, we've, uh, We've rightly emphasized the cross, the fact that Christ has borne our sins on the cross. You don't have to be at enmity with God anymore. You don't have to be his enemy anymore, but, but your sins in Jesus Christ have been utterly and completely paid for and dealt with. We have um, increasingly over the last few decades rightly emphasized the beauty, the importance um, of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, that, that Christ was bodily raised from the dead. That, that God's intentions declared in the resurrection of Jesus for the whole world is that this, that this physical world would be restored and rescued from death. That all um, signs of death ultimately would be banished from this world. But a piece that I think we Protestants, we particularly evangelicals, have missed is the central place of the ascension of Jesus and the implications of that for our understanding of, of um, in the first place, where Christ is and what Christ is up to, and two, what, what are we supposed to be about? What, what does it mean that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father? If we're united with Jesus in baptism, such that where he is, what's true of him is true of us, then There are massive implications to consider as we think about the simple truth that Christ's body has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now now this is central to the teaching of the New Testament. And I think one of the reasons we've uh, downplayed it or haven't talked about it or meditated on it nearly enough is because we're not quite sure what to do with it in the first place. And second, the implications of it that we're going to begin to consider today are are almost too great to believe, too too marvelous to believe. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, like this truth, when confessed and believed, as we consider the, the vocation of the church, pushes us, calls us, places upon us a kind of vocation in the world 
um, in which we must bear a great deal of responsibility and weight. And if human beings are good at anything, it's, we're good at avoiding responsibility. And yet as we begin to consider where Jesus is, um, as we begin to consider what we are in Christ, in other words, not what we should be up to, but in the first place, just what we actually are. What is our vocation as the people of God living in the midst of the nations? Um, as we consider the fact that's declared in the ascension of Jesus, what we're going to see and hopefully feel um, a new sense of weight, a new sense of vocation. And as we look out at the world around us, as you um, drove here, um, I'm sure you passed, many of you passed Civic Center Park, and you see the remnants uh, of the 420 party that was held just a few days ago down there. Um, What we're going to begin to see around us is not primarily a world with which we need to have a great deal of animosity and cynicism, but rather we're going to begin to look around us at a world, um, at a society which by all appearances, seems to be collapsing into chaos and sin and rebellion. And instead of a a sense of cynicism, my prayer today is that we'd feel a sense of responsibility, a sense of vocation, a sorrow and a renewed call to repentance and re-engage with the task that God has given us as his people in the world. And so, first I want to, Revisit the fact of the ascension of Jesus. Where is Jesus now? Um, but, but not just the, the raw kind of physical fact of it, the ontological fact of where his body is. But what is Jesus' vocation now? And so I, I want you to look with me again at Acts chapter 2. We're going to kind of be all over the Bible um, again this week um, as we try to pull together different themes that, that all kind of coalesce on this confession, this belief in the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Um, af, at, at the end of Acts chapter 1, or in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. And so we saw last week that Jesus is the Son of Man, the cloud rider that, that ascends into the heavenly places. Um, and, and we saw the parallels there, uh, there with Revelation chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 7. You remember the imagery from Daniel chapter 7? Um, the Ancient of Days takes up his seat. Um, uh, his, 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 he begins to rule. He, he is established as the ruler. Um, and he sits down as judge of all the nations. Begins to evaluate where the world is. Is And then coming before him is the Son of Man riding a cloud um, and, and he is given, he is commissioned um, as the one who will conquer the nations, the one who is, is given authority over all of the nations for all time. You remember that the imagery there is, um, Acts chapter 2 is kind of the earthly side. So, so the disciples are watching kind of from the, from the ground up as this thing unfolds. And then you flip over to Daniel chapter 7 or Revelation chapter 5. And you see here's what's happening in the heavenlies. So the disciples watch Jesus ascend on a cloud into the heavenly places. Um, the angels promise he will come again um, to you just as he departed. In other words, he's going to come riding on the clouds. Um, and, and then you flip over, in other words, to see, okay, what happens after he goes out of view of the disciples? 
you flip over to Daniel chapter seven and Revelation chapter five, and you get an image of what's actually unfolding in the universe as Jesus disappears from the view of the disciples. And the thing that unfolds um, in the heavenlies, um, which has permanence and has universal applicability. In other words, it's not just a kind of a spiritual reality. Um, Stop dividing the world into spiritual realities and earthly ones. What happens for all people in all times and all places is Jesus ascends to the Father and is enthroned and given a vocation. He's given authority and that with all authority in all places and all times comes responsibility. Sounds like a quote from Spider-Man. But with authority, with power, comes a particular responsibility, a particular vocation in the world. And that authority, that vocation, is to conquer, to disciple, to teach, to bring together all the nations of the earth under his rule. That's what you see unfold in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man being enthroned and commissioned by the Ancient of Days. It's what you see unfold in Revelation chapter 5, as again the Lamb who is the Lion of Judah, the Lamb standing as if slain, is given the scroll. And the scroll, if you remember, um, uh, recognizes all, it is the embodiment of all the promises of God, all the purposes of God for all of history, um, primarily that the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So that happens in Acts chapter 1. You also remember prior to that ascension, what are the disciples doing? What's the last thing Luke tells us the disciples are up to? They're hiding. They're terrified. They're afraid. But then this ascension happens. And the next thing you know, they're in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we have Pentecost. And at Pentecost, the disciples are in an upper room. And they're praying. And you see what happens in after Revelation 5 comes Revelation 6, Jesus begins to actually fulfill his mandate, his commission to conquer the nations. It's what the, the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 begins to do. And in Acts chapter 2, we have the earthly side of what the heavenly side of Revelation chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7 and 8 begins to unfold. And what happens first the Spirit of God is poured out on the disciples such that the disciples begin to declare the greatness of God, the great deeds of God, the glory of God in the tongues of all the nations of the earth. And this isn't a sermon about tongues, but in Acts chapter 2, whatever tongues is, it's a language that people from other nations can understand. Full stop. I'm very tempted to just run with that, but I'm going to let that go. <laughs> In other words, the Spirit of God is poured out on them, and they begin to communicate, not just in Hebrew, not just in Aramaic, 
but in all the languages in all of the earth. And what are they communicating? The greatness of God, the authority of God, the power of God, the promises of God, the goodness of God, the acts of God. They begin to declare these things, and then Peter, of all people, stands up in verse 14, that we looked at the end of his sermon, and he begins to declare to, to the people in Jerusalem an explanation of what they're seeing. His explanation um, kind of uh, navigates through a number, of different, uh, a number of different Old Testament promises as he weaves together the story of Jesus, Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And then it comes to this place there in verse 34 and he quotes Psalm 110, the Old Testament reading for today's sermon. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Flip back over to Psalm 110. Whenever you see, this is a free aside. Whenever you see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, you should go back to the Old Testament and read the whole thing. Um, the, the apostles didn't proof text. They didn't grab a verse out of kind of willy-nilly and just use it. This word, these words kind of work. Let's just use them. Um, now they actually have in their minds as they quote the Old Testament everything that that section of the Old Testament said. So Peter quotes, again, remember what he's doing. This isn't just kind of like an evangelistic Billy Graham sermon on a street corner in Jerusalem. Um, something strange is going on such that people are looking at these people going like, these, these guys are drunk. <laughs> they're speaking, they're declaring the nature and character and, and works of God. They're doing so in all the languages of the earth. And the question is, arise, uh, is, is arising all around like, what on earth is happening right now? Peter's sermon is answering the question, what on earth is happening right now. And his answer is to go to all kinds of Old Testament promises and weave them into the story of Jesus and to quote Psalm 110. In other words, what's happening at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit on the disciples is Psalm 110. Let's look at it. The Lord, Psalm 110 begins with the section that Peter quotes. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Scepter is a symbol of rule, of authority, of power. So here is authority and power and rule, not up in heaven somewhere, waiting to be sent into the world. Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. And he begins to rule, and what does he do? He sends his scepter, he sends his rule, he sends his authority into the world. Got it? It's okay if you don't. I have a good 20 minutes left. I'll try to get you there. Let's keep going. 
rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, the day of your authority, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, um, this reference to Melchizedek might sound strange to you because it is kind of strange. Like, you guys spend a lot of time thinking about Melchizedek. Um, Melchizedek, Genesis, is the priest king. So it is the... um, he becomes a type of Christ or a forerunner of Christ or a shadow of Christ in the Old Testament um, in which the priesthood, um, in which the worship of Yahweh and the instruction of God's people in the law is united with political authority. So what this is saying is in Jesus, the rule of the nations and the worship of Yahweh are brought together in one. So no separation of Religion and how the world is run. They're all together in Jesus. Verse 5 The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The way that nations are ruled will be shattered, undone, turned upside down, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs or governors over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So we have the fact of the ascension of Jesus. He is bodily, not just raised from the dead, not just kind of spiritually in some sort of emotional or sentimental sense, existing at the right hand of the Father so that we come together and we all know in reality it's not real practically true, um, but, but, um, but we come and we pretend like Jesus has all authority and he's King of kings and Lord of lords and he rules all the nations. Um, that, that's not what the ascension teaches. That's not what Psalm 110 teaches, which what Peter says is actually happening right now. What Psalm 110 teaches is Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and has been given all authority, real authority right now. Authority to rule. And that rule is not just waiting in heaven someday for some um, grand future, but that rule has his scepter, his authority has been sent into the world now. Now, Sounds nice and spiritual and the kind of thing you should nod at, right? Yes, that, that sounds very Jesus-y. Let's all get excited about Jesus-y and nod. Jesus' scepter goes forth. Then you'll leave here and you go to Chipotle and get your chicken bowl, um, probably with beans, which is gross. Um, and you'll go about the rest of your day and you'll look on Twitter and everything else in the world, or you'll drive past the four, remnants of the 420 party at Civic Center Park, and you'll think, actually you won't think, because you're all too pious for this, but subconsciously maybe you'll think, that Brian, such warm sentimental thoughts, but he's nuts. Like look, the world's gone crazy. We, we don't know if, what a man or a woman it is anymore. We don't, we don't know um, what, what sex is for anymore. We have people just showing up and uh, getting high out of their brains and taking all their clothes off and running around like crazy people. Like you, you look out at the world and it appears to be 
nuts. Right? Maybe you don't know it. And if you don't, Lord bless you, stay off Twitter. The world's going crazy. And by all appearances, society is just spiraling out from any sort of cohesiveness, any sort of like real, productive, fruitful good. It just looks like madness if you pay much attention. And so you look out at the world and you see a world filled with what appears to be chaos and rebellion against God and madness. And then you look to Psalm 110 and you hear Peter quoting it. You see Revelation 5 and even though it's Revelation and Revelation's weird. um, You see whatever we're supposed to do with all the rest of the stuff, it, it appears in Revelation 5 Jesus has been enthroned to rule everyone, everywhere. You go to Daniel, and Daniel's even weirder, let's be honest. It appears the Son of Man has been given all authority to conquer the nations. And if you think about it, for more than like 47 seconds, you get past your pious nodding, and like this sentimental warm feeling in your gut about, how great it is that Jesus is king. You start contrasting those two images. Pretty soon you start to go, wait. <laughs> like, really? Like Christ is really king. He's really sent his scepter into the world. Like, it's not just a theoretical thing. It's not just for some kind of distant, far-off future. Christ will actually bring the kingdom. But actually, no, he's been established now and forever. Let me make matters worse. <laughs> a little worse. I'm in Daniel chapter 7. There's a series of images that play out prior to the scene that we've talked about with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man ascending on the clouds. And it's an image that actually resonates with the whole narrative of Scripture, um, the whole story of Scripture. In fact, this image is is grounded in um, things that take place in Genesis chapter 2, the commission given to Adam and all of mankind in Genesis chapter 2. The image in Daniel chapter 7 is you have a series of wild beasts. Four of them. Wild beasts. that have authority and they have power and they do a series of things. And you have this um, fifth kind of beast horn. It's this, this is crazy. Um, that, that arises and speaks horrible things and, and ultimately um, tries to lead the other beasts to kill the men. Men and women. But mankind. And there's an image there that, that if, you, if you look at Daniel chapter 7, you might start scratching your head saying, this is just one of those weird things in Daniel. Let's get on to like other things, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and going in the fire. And better, you know, stories from your childhood. Um, you don't really hear a lot of stories in your childhood about the beasts from Daniel 7. Usually you get to the fire and the statue and the remember veggie tales with the big cucumber. Um, 
all that. You get to those stories, you kind of skip over the beasts and horns and horns that talk and um, all of that kind of thing. But, but it's actually a really, really important story to understand the narrative of Scripture. And I would say even more than just understanding, um, uh, more, than, more than just kind of understanding some sort of kind of theoretical arc or literary arc at the heart of Scripture, it actually has to do with the nature of what it means to be the people of God and the vocation of the people of God at work in the world. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden surrounded by wild beasts. But what are they commissioned to do? They're given authority to to cause the earth to be fruitful and multiply. They're they're to be fruitful and multiply, but they're to cause the earth to, 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 to subdue the earth. And with that is to subdue all the wild animals. To, to bring them under their care such that the world operates and functions and, and does what the world is supposed to do um, in such a way that it bears fruit. It, it's, it, it images forth God's beauty and his goodness and his fruitfulness on the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy, and particularly in the book of Daniel, um, uh, God takes up that image, the image of, of man and beasts, and applies that to the Jews or the, the covenant people of God and the nations of the earth. Now, the nations are the wild beasts. The Jews are God's image bearers, God's covenant image bearers. And they're placed in the world. And the promise of God is that the, the beasts, the wild beasts, will be subdued. And what happens in Daniel 7 is... Um, Jesus comes and he's given, the Son of Man has comes and he's given all this authority. And what unfolds after Daniel 7 is the taming of the wild beasts. They begin to function and operate the way they're to function and operate. That's, that, 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 that has to do with the overthrow of kings. The whole world is turned upside down. And the way that the world has operated in its wildness and its rebellion against God will be undone. And then the world will begin to be filled with life and goodness and its wildness, the, the wildness of the wild beasts that tear and destroy will be subdued, will be tamed. So how do we put all this together? So Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, Revelation chapter five. In Revelation chapter six, he sends his people, the church, symbolized in Revelation chapter 6 by four horses, filled with the Spirit of God, and he leads them into battle in the world. And what unfolds in Revelation chapter 6 is the whole world is turned upside down. With the goal, the beasts would be tamed. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, possessing all authority. That's last week. This week, what is Jesus up to? How is he exercising that authority? Well, he sends his scepter. He sends his four horsemen. He sends, according to Acts 2, his spirit into the church, onto the church. So what? 
so that his authority would now be carried by the church, that the responsibility that he has, um, that he's been given by the Ancient of Days to see the whole world subdued, to see the whole world brought under his care, to see the whole world begin to produce fruit and righteousness and goodness everywhere. He sends out his spirit onto the church to be the means, the scepter, the authority of Jesus sent into the world to speak to all of the nations the glory of God and the majesty of God and the, the, the beauty of God and the power of God and the grace of God and the judgment of God. Jesus calls us in the Great Commission to be teachers. To, to bear a kind of authority and vocation in the world where we teach the world how to be fruitful, how to be righteous, how to walk in the good ways of our God. We teach the world concerning the authority of Jesus over the world. And we do so with the authority not derived from our own righteousness, not derived from our own giftedness, not derived from our own kind of charismatic personality or athleticism but authority that's utterly dependent on the spirit of God invested in and indwelling the church of the living God, the church of Jesus Christ. We are sent into the world to tame the wild beasts. So what does this have to do with 420 day and the chaos that's very apparent on Twitter at least? How do we make sense of all that? Because it, it doesn't look like we're doing a very good job of it, right? Like if we're the scepter of Jesus, <laughs> we're kind of in our own little corner doing our own thing while everyone else is going crazy. Um, there, there was a documentary that was, um, it was a favorite of mine a few years ago because of how odd it was. It was like Daniel, kind of. Um, it was about this guy, the name of the documentary was Grizzly Man. Did you guys see it? It was amazing. Go look it up on Netflix. Um, Grizzly Man uh, was this crazy guy, and I, I say that without any disdain. He was completely insane. Um, he wanted to go and live with bears. And so there's an island in Alaska has the highest concentration of Kodiak grizzly bears of anywhere in the world. And he got dropped off there and just decided he was going to live with the bears. And Grizzly Man... Um, uh, had a, a little bit of studies in terms of animal behavior and those kind of things. And so the way that he did it, at least at first, um, was he just acted like a grizzly bear. Like when they would come near him, he would do, I mean, I'm not going to act it out because it would destroy the legitimacy of my office. Um, <laughs> let's just say it involved growling and being loud and talking to the bears. And sometimes, and, and he filmed a lot of this and actually most of it, and you could, that was the documentary. He was kind of telling this story and it would show him wrestling around with the bears, which was cute, and, and growling at the bears and yelling at the bears, at which point you get kind of nervous in the show because you're like, you're yelling at a bear that's like 15 times your size. Um, but things went well. He looked just like a bear. He didn't look like a bear. But, but he, he looked like a man, but he looked like a man who tried to act as best he could just like the bears all around him. And 
liked the bears all around him. Uh, another bear began to see him as a rival. And so one night, that bear came and ate the grizzly man. Just gave away the whole story. It's very sad. Um, it's not a surprise. And I think they tell you in the first three minutes that he gets eaten by one of his rival bears. Um, if you hear that story, do you blame the grizzlies? Quick clue, no. Right? Like he was dumb. Like he went, rather than taming the wild beast, he tried to become the wild beast, and so he was consumed by the wild beasts. If, let's put it this way, let's say you're a fourth grade teacher. Every day you go into class, and all the kids are throwing pencils at you. Like all of them. Complete chaos. And they're all failing math. Like they're all failing math. And every time you turn your back, 15 pencils right at your head. Some of them pretty sharp. They hit you. There's screaming and there's dancing and there's throwing around of desks. Do you blame the students? Is the problem the students? No. Problem is the teacher. You see, with the ascension of Jesus places upon us, the mantle that places upon us, as we sit in this room and gather in the name of Jesus and are sent out into the world in just a few minutes, having tasted the bread and the wine and been reminded of the glory of God and the beauty of God and the majesty of God and the authority of God, what it tells us is you have been commissioned as teachers bearing the authority of the Lord out into the world. Um, Far too much time has been spent by the church um, imagining that the real problem with the church is the culture has influenced the church. I would say it's exactly the opposite. The church has failed to declare and to embody faithfully the good and glorious and gracious reign of Jesus over the nations. The pattern you see in scripture is exactly the opposite of what we assume. Culture is always downstream from worship. The worship of the church will always be reflected and magnified in the culture around it. Let me give you an example. We look around at the world today and one of the things that is extremely apparent and being shouted about all the time right now is all of the discussions about transgenderism, all of the, the sexual confusion that runs rampant in our world. And one of the things happening in the church is they're looking at that and saying, we have to make sure that doesn't influence the church. Where do you think that came from? Seventy years ago, we, we stopped in a large part of evangelicalism in America and within Protestant, with Protestantism within America, we stopped acknowledging in the pulpit and the leadership of the church the, the unique and different callings between men and women in the home and in the church. 
we could identify that there's a distinction, there's a difference in vocation, a difference in, in how we image God in the world. We quit distinguishing between the genders. Of course there's confusion in the culture a few decades later over gender. You don't blame the students. You blame the teacher. The glory and the weight the ascension of Jesus and with him his people is that we've been given a vocation, an office, a kind of authority and therefore a real responsibility in the world to teach the nations, to tame the wild beasts, to bring them gladly into subjection to King Jesus that they might know him and love him and worship him and trust him and obey him. So what do we do with that vocation? I want to give you four. Here's my four-point, two-minute sermon at the end of all that. Four things that I think God has called us to do and to be about in the midst of the nations. One, believe the words of God. Without apology, without explaining them away, without qualifying those words, hear the words of the king that we bear authority under and believe every single one of them. Beginning with the fact that your sins are forgiven in Jesus. But don't stop there. But moving out from there to understand marriage, to understand sex, to understand money, to understand the nature of wisdom and beauty and truth and goodness. Every single word. Believe every single one of them without qualification, without apology. Second, because you believe them, obey them. Without qualification, without apology, Believe and then obey every single word that God has said. Don't qualify them. Don't make apologies for them. Um, don't, um, don't think of these words and think of these commands um, merely as kind of things that like you're taking on for yourself. But no, rep, re, recognize these are the words of God over and for every single human being on the earth. In other words, we haven't just found a kind of version of life that we, we like better than somebody else's version of life and they can have theirs and we can have ours and, and let's just kind of run with it. No, these words are true and beautiful and good for all people in all places, at all times. Therefore, let's just begin, before we begin to um, call people into them, we must believe them and obey them. These aren't like clothes to try on. Like, like you like these clothes, these religious clothes to put on and, and some people go to 
Abercrombie and Fitch, oh, this is dating me in the 90s, um, Abercrombie and Fitch, and you like going to the Gap, and they're going to wear their religious clothes, and you're going to wear yours, and everything's fine. No, these are the clothes everyone's supposed to wear. And so believe them and obey them. Third, parents, teach your children. Begin with your children. And then moving out from your children to everyone you know. Teach them to believe every word that God has said and to obey every word that God has said. Without qualification, without apology, these words are good. These words are true. These words are beautiful. These words lead to fruitfulness and joy and life. So, so first, begin with yourself. Believe all the words. Obey all the words. Then begin to teach all those words and, and work Work your way out. We, we really must begin with our children. Uh, but beginning with our children, we must move out from there. These words that apply to every human being on earth. If we want culture, the, the culture around us to begin to reflect the goodness of God and the beauty of God and the clarity of God and the mag- magnificence of God. And we have to begin here. And we have to begin in our homes. And we have to begin in our churches to believe these words and to embody these words and to obey these words and to teach these words. I said four points, I have five, sorry. Four, this is for a handful of us in this room. Put away your cynicism. Get rid of it. I I think oftentimes the church kind of plays um, different roles in the way it relates to culture. And and to draw it into this teacher analogy, it's like there's a couple different options out there for you. If you're the teacher and you've got these fourth graders who are throwing pencils at your head and dancing and throwing desks around. Some Christians have decided they're just going to spend the rest of the day in the break room. Lock the door. Go eat your soup, Greek yogurt, or whatever it is you eat in the break room, read your phone, newspaper, and just let's just hold out. Let's hold out. Eventually the final bell will come. You open the door, the kids will rush out and go home, and we don't have to deal with it. That's one approach. So you just kind of have your own little private Christianity over here, and you don't take on, receive, or believe the vocation to teach the nations. Others, um, maybe some of you in this room, you stay in the classroom and you're just mad. Throw the pencils back at the kids, aiming for the eyes. You flip your desk over, you scream. Maybe one day you just bring those dodgeballs, the heavy ones, the really good ones, that if you hit somebody just right, especially a little kid, they flip. we had, we had dodgeball games that we played at this camp, and I was a counselor there a couple summers. Um, there's a reason I'm not a counselor there anymore. Um, and uh, my favorite thing to do was to play dodgeball with 
the nine-year-olds. Flip. Um, that's you, right? You're in the classroom. You're not going to leave. You're there. You look around at the kids. It's just these kids are worthless. They're never going to learn. Look at them. He's throwing a pencil. That kid's picking his nose. I'm not going to try to teach them math. They don't even know how to. They, they, they're never going to figure it out. And they just persist throughout the day, waiting for the final bell, angry and bitter and cynical about everything that's going around them. I, I, I would tell you, the first two, if you're in this room, stop it. But there's a third group. The third group decides, if you can't beat them, let's join them. You're like the guy, Grizzly Man, goes and lives with the Kodiaks. You begin acting like the nine-year-old. You start throwing pencils at the principal when he comes in to tell you what in the world's happening here. You start throwing pencils and flipping desks and dancing around and hollering and yelling and taking your shirt off and running around crazy and doing all the crazy things. Like you just start behaving just like the beasts. And I think the last 20 years, a lot of Christians have thought, hey, the best way to get people to know Jesus and love Jesus is let's just eliminate all the differences between what it means to be the teacher and what it means to be the student. Instead, take up your vocation. Put away cynicism, but put away the cowardice that leads us to think there's no distinction between what Jesus says the world is like and what the nations right now in their rebellion say the world is like. Is like. Rather, believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus has called us and sent us that the world might see what it means to be human, but what it means to reflect his goodness in the world. And last, and the most important thing, worship Jesus. When insane and beastly laws are being passed, like we're just passed, half a block from here, about the murder of babies in mass. It may feel like it's not doing much, but it's doing far more than any sort of political rally can do. Gather with the people of God in the presence of God and declare defiantly and joyfully that Jesus Christ rules the nations, that he will cast down and is casting down every law that murders babies that he is casting down every authority that lifts its head thinking that it doesn't have to answer to Jesus. Gather with the saints and worship and be reminded um, through the body and the blood of Jesus where it is that you and I sit and who has real authority and power in this world. Let's pray and prepare for communion.